Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, an editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, Ken Nalbone. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rich. Happy to be here once again. Fantastic. Let's get it started, I think, with one of my favorite segments that we do. There are so many IT news stories, we can't cover them all in discussion length detail. We need a faster way to do it. It's a little something we like to call news or not. Nah. This is where we'll run down the news. Uh, Ken, you'll let me know if it's newsworthy or not. We're going to get started off right here with AWS. They acquired E8 Storage, makers of the shared NVMe rack scale storage software solution. This is designed for highly scalable, high-performance storage on commodity hardware without a lot of CPU overhead. It's kind of a big deal there. The deal was reportedly worth less than analysts had estimated of between 50 to $60 million. Uh, we don't know the exact figure because uh, E8's private and all that good stuff. Amazon isn't shy about acquisitions. They spent over a billion dollars in acquisitions last year. So is this play news or not here, Ken? Kind of, yes. Uh, simply because, you know, those of us who follow the storage industry will find it, in industry will find it in interesting. And it's most likely an aqua hire since AWS doesn't really use your typical enterprise storage technology. They kind of do their own thing because they're a hyperscaler. Uh, but E8 has some cool stuff that clearly AWS took notice of and said, we need that in our products, probably going to somehow fold the IP into their services. Yeah, if you want a little background on that, maybe on an architectural level, we also have some uh, videos from Tech Field Day when they presented, so you can check that out at techfieldday.com or uh, on their YouTube channel as well. Uh, next up here, HPE announced the acquisition of the assets of MapR. So they didn't buy MapR, they just bought the assets. It's a little fuzzy. Uh, with this comes MapR's technology, intellectual property, and expertise in AI and data management, along with an undisclosed number of employees. MapR is still maintaining customer relationships and support and that kind of stuff, but it sounds like all of the development is moving over to HPE. MapR's distributed file system will be rolled into HPE's intelligent data platform and used to create data pipelines uh, between on-premise and public on-premises and public clouds, excuse me. HP buying up a quality big data IP. News or not here, Ken? Well, yeah, it's news, especially to those of you out there who have bet on big data as being a thing. Uh, does this make the, the nature of the acquisition, right? The fact that they're buying assets and not the entire company outright. What does that say about how MapR and other products lived up to the promise of big data? Did they, are they, is this going to signal a reset of expectations for folks who are trying to unlock the value of their data as they just pump tons of it into some system to be taken care of later? Yeah, this, if you haven't been following kind of the saga of MapR, I mean, they were kind of seen as a big data unicorn uh, a couple of years ago. Them, uh, mm -hmm. Hortonworks, and one other company raised like uh, one and a half billion dollars or something like that. So a, a really, uh, you know, big deal in funding a few years ago, this last quarter, uh, MapR announced that they had extremely poor results. We're essentially saying if we don't get a funding round by mid-July, we're going to be in a lot of trouble, and this is a result. Um, if you want to get a little background, though, on maybe some of the, the expertise, though, that they have, uh, we did an interview uh, with Ted Dunning, uh, who's their chief application architect at Allshow show and Apache Software Foundation board member. Uh, you can check that out on gestaltit.com. It's an it's a audio interview, so check that out. He's a really fascinating dude. Next up here on News or Nah, Sony and Fujifilm. They've made patent peace. They've mutually agreed to dismiss a patent a dispute lawsuit in the U.S. Court of Appeals, which sent around high-density LTO-8 tape technology, and it substantially limited global supply. I mean, if you're not tapped into the tape industry, and good for you if you're not, uh, 
this had really constrained supplies. They were going back to LTO6, LTO7. There were some ways to extend it to get better density and stuff like that. But really, if you were looking for that, you know, 12 terabyte uh, raw density that you could get from LTO8, you were really out of luck for a while. In a statement from the LTO program technology provider companies, uh, catchy name there, guys, it appears the two have entered into a cross-licensing agreement and will both produce LTO8 tape media again. 12 terabyte tape coming back in Q4. News or not here, Ken? No, because I predicted this two months ago when we discussed it on an earlier episode of The Rundown. I was like, there's no way they're just going to let tape supply drive up because they can't settle some kind of patent dispute. Something's going to happen. I was right. Yay me. And LTO9 is supposed to be hitting the market sometime in mid-2020 or somewhere around there, which is, again, just another iteration, much Mm -hmm. higher density. So, you know, maybe a little bit of pressure on that end, too, realizing uh, kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater there. All right, next up here, uh, Xilinx unveiled the Alveo U50, its first FPGA to support PCIe 4.0. It's a half-height, half-length card featuring 8 gigabytes of high bandwidth memory, and it offers 400 gigabits per second uh, data transfer speeds and 100 gigabit per second external connectivity with a 75-watt thermal envelope, so, you know, relatively power efficient. Overall, Xilinx claims the U50 can offer four times the throughput, a tenth of the query times, and reduce operating costs by three times compared to using a Xeon Platinum 8260 CPU for machine learning or other workloads that you would use in FPGA4. Uh, next end, FPGAs come in here, Ken. News or not? Uh, nah, I mean, it's cool tech. Uh, I think it was just going to happen eventually. So kudos to Xilinx for being one of the first ones, you know, out of the gate. Good for them. Uh, but I, I expected this to happen at some point anyway, so... Eh. All right, follow up here. Uh, The Google Project Zero team announced that since starting in July 2014 and tracing 1,585 vulnerabilities, 95% of them were fixed before the group's 90-day deadline. Accounting for an additional 14-day grace period for fixes introduced by Project Zero back in 2015, only 66 reported uh, vulnerabilities failed to be addressed before Google published technical details. Google does get some criticism for publishing extensive code and proof of concept examples on these patched bugs, but does the 95% patch rate, you know, feel right here, Ken? Or is, is that is that good or bad? Put this in context for me. User not. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's encouraging, you know, uh, and obviously the timing of this has probably to do with the fact that we've got security conferences happening this weekend, this week. So everyone wants to talk about it. Um, 95% seems like a pretty good batting average. I'd be interested to know of those 66 that were not fixed before the deadline uh things like did they have a workaround in place or how many people were affected how serious were those remaining five percent uh you know and what what effect did that have on users well if they but, were in the last year or two they were probably covered at some point on the gestalt it rundown because those you know those then become newsmakers right there's a zero day mm-hmm. vulnerability there's no patch out there google has all these pocs out there and then of course inevitably a day after that story is published uh, the company comes out with a patch usually anyway. So yeah, I, it is interesting to put that into context, raw numbers versus what those actually mean. Uh, mm-hmm. First up here on our discussion though, uh, kind of a, a perpetual issue that we're seeing, and I, but I think this signals maybe it's bigger than we even think. A security researcher found that a misconfiguration in JIRA servers by organizations like Google, Yahoo, NASA, Lenovo, 1Password, Zendesk, and other government and healthcare agencies cause details like names, roles, email addresses of employees, and project details and timelines to be publicly available. The issue seems to come from when creating a new dashboard in Jira Cloud, the default visibility is set for all. 
it seems like some organizations are assuming that that means all within an organization, not like all as in the world uh, or the internet at large. JIRA has options to allow for anonymous and web access, and researchers were able to get information from government educational institutions using JIRA, and we're still able to after this story was published. There was an update uh, that I saw on the link that I had for this. Uh, JIRA has tools to show if you're unwittingly exposing information, uh, but this is happening even with those already in place. Um, we're seeing this now from competent technical you know, companies, I mean, Google, Lenovo, like these aren't companies that don't know IT. How do less sophisticated organizations stand a chance for these kind of misconfiguration, privacy slash security uh, issues here, Ken? Well, apparently they don't. And, uh, you know, something like this is clearly a problem with the platform. I mean, we regularly say things like check defaults and don't leave things wide open. But the fact that these companies are affected is a signal of a, a systemic problem. And Atlassian, the owners of Jira, they need to either change the defaults to be less wide open or document them more thoroughly because clearly people don't understand what they're getting themselves into, even the tech savvy, savvy companies that you mentioned. Well, so the the answer to that seems to be, you know, opt into, like make everything super explicitly opt in, you know, don't have any, mm -hmm. don't have maybe don't have any defaults, but then how... For a company like Atlassian, you know, Jira is all centered around agile development, that kind of stuff, where the key is really to automate everything, make everything flow mm -hmm. super fast. Doesn't Isn't that a contradiction in terms or is that just something we just have to accept that, you know, anytime we're, we're entering into automation and we're assuming some sort of default, that is a potential vulnerability and or maybe just a privacy issue. I know there's a fine line uh, right. distinction that we make between privacy and security. Is this a privacy issue that we can deal with, or is this a more upsetting security issue? It, it sounds more like a privacy issue simply because it didn't sound like there was, you know, personal identifiable information being put out publicly on the internet. Um, you know, you, you, when you talk about automation and, you know, is this security concern going to slow it down? Well, maybe, but everybody should upfront realize that when you implement any kind of automation practice, you have some workflow creation or whatever the case may be at the, front end of any of those efforts. And this should be a part of it. You know, what kind of security policies are we going to set up around our projects and how do we enforce and implement them on an automated basis? How do we, you know, leverage it against an API so that every time we deploy a new workspace or whatever the case may be, you know, a new project, we ensure that we have the correct controls in place. That should just be part of the project from the get-go. Yeah. And, and, you know, names, email addresses, when you're working for a company, that's not the end of the world in terms of disclosure. I mean, that's pretty much Googleable in a lot of cases anyway. Uh, but when you're getting into companies like Google having, you know, project roadmaps and, mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff, those details leaked, even if it's the name of headings, I mean, yeah, maybe those are used by uh, leakers or something like that to get a story out of there. But, you know, that's a that's a competitive edge that you're theoretically losing, you know, your your data privacy. So uh, yeah. maybe this is a case of uh, this will motivate companies to use their own internal systems that they just have better documentation for. I don't know. We'll have to see. Plus, if, if Google has their timelines public, then people will know when they're planning on killing off the next project <laughs> before it ever comes out. They probably don't want that. Touche, Ken. Well... Next up here at Black Hat, Microsoft announced Azure Security Lab, an Azure framework isolated from their production cloud, so it's not connected in any way to the Azure that you would run any kind of business applications on, uh, designed for aggressive security testing. This will give researchers the freedom to not just look for vulnerabilities, but to follow through and actively exploit them, uh, obviously without you know, the fear of losing any actual, uh, you know, personal data or breaking any laws or anything like that. Microsoft is organizing quarterly uh, security challenges with up to 
$1,000 in rewards for meeting the challenges. The company also updated their bug bounty program with a max reward for serious bugs now set at $40,000. Over the past 12 months, Microsoft paid out over $4.4 million in bounties compared to $2 million in 2018. So they're really, I mean, really stepping that up in terms of people submitting bugs, which I guess is good for fixing bugs. Uh, any downside, though, here for any for, for kind of courting the hackers here, Ken, or is, is this just all upside and making Microsoft more secure? I mean, I don't see a really serious downside. It's a lab, right? So by all means, turn people loose. I, there's a potential for abuse by people who might use it to find flaws without disclosing them, but their Microsoft is has incentives in place to encourage people to disclose these, right? Mm -hmm. Plus, you know, we kind of discussed this ahead of the show. We don't know, is Microsoft still charging people to use this lab like the regular Azure cloud, or is it going to be freely available? I don't know. If people are charged to use this lab like they are typical Azure resources, then, you know, you're not probably going to see those types of folks who are going to try to export it for misdeeds, uh, use it in the first case anyway. So yeah, mild potential for abuse. I don't see it as a big downside to counter all the upside that this kind of effort brings. Well, and I, what I actually think is really interesting is not just the bugs that will be the result of this, right? But I actually think there's an interesting opportunity here for Microsoft who by all accounts is uh, you know is, is very aggressive in AI and ML and that kind of stuff to use this for pattern recognition of how people that are looking to exploit Azure like go about navigating, querying that kind of stuff and build up a database so that they can look for those same kind of patterns on the product you know on 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 Azure standard or the the non lab environment and then maybe do a little bit more proactive uh, security audits on that as well. I think that's a really interesting possibility. Yeah, who knows what's going to be unveiled? It's stuff that somebody at Microsoft never thought of for some reason in retrospect and be like, oh, wow, that's great. Now we know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. All right. Uh, speaking of things that less people think is great, Facebook is rolling out a redesign of Workplace from Facebook. This is their workplace messaging platform. Ostensibly, it's competing with things like Microsoft Teams and Slack. The app is adopting a three-panel design. Uh, so on the left side, you have a small pane with home, notifications, and chat uh, right there. Uh, previously, notifications had been in a very typical Facebook location, you know, kind of upper right in a very small icon. This is giving them a much more prominent space in navigation. Uh, the middle panel has groups and people sections. So this is where kind of your more traditional channels would live. And then you have a main panel that keeps the traditional news feed. It was, it was actually kind of interesting that the workplace teams realize, like are kind of subject to the redesigned whims of Facebook proper. They're still running the pretty much standard news, or news feed algorithm on this to surface content for workers, which has some interesting implications. Uh, workplace has 2 million monthly active users and some wins in the Fortune 500. I think Walgreens and and I was seeing it like fairly prominent companies uh, using this uh, for their collaboration. Is this redesign though enough to spur further adoption, or is this about keeping you know keeping any attrition uh, from going on? I don't see this doing much for adoption of the product, frankly. Um, enterprise and productivity are probably the last words that come to mind when I think of Facebook. And uh, like you pointed out, it's it's a two horse race between Slacks and Teams, with Slack being the clear leader. Um, it's understandable that Facebook would want to basically branch out and create new revenue sources since their main platform is kind of languishing, but this seems like a non-starter. Even those Fortune 500 wins that you mentioned, I wonder how on board the employees are. I mean, even folks who are using Teams, for example, as opposed to Slack, how big is buying? I've been in environments where the switch is made from Slack to Teams, and all of a sudden, use of those 
of the platform declined severely over uh, one, one or the other. So, yeah, good for Walgreens. They're a customer. How much are employees <laughs> really using it? I have my doubts. Well, the one thing I will say is the advantage, the, the, the main detriment that people say about workplace is that it's from Facebook. Again, Facebook, we don't associate with productivity, right? But on the flip side, that's also a maybe long-term their strength, right? Because if you adopt workplace, the barrier to understanding the UI is relatively low because they're still keeping that standard newsfeed. You already know how to navigate that. Yes, there's some additional details grafted on top of that. And what I think is interesting is unlike Teams or Slack, which is very much uh, still a list of a chronological chat within channels, again, mm -hmm. this surfaces relevant content. Now, the problem is if it's not good at surfacing rele re uh, relevant content, and I think everyone has issues with the newsfeed algorithm on Facebook, that can be a detriment because you're not seeing what you need to see. But I, I, I think that's an interesting take on this kind of uh, workplace chat. Instead of just being a Slack clone, which Facebook could easily do and maybe hope to peel off, you know, Slack is a, is a fairly new publicly traded company. They have to deliver a growth to investors and that kind of stuff. Be just enough of a fly in the ointment being a Slack clone. I think this is a longer term play for them betting on that familiar navigation. I think it's very interesting that they haven't moved away from the newsfeed and that like they're framing everything else around that. Yeah, but on that note, it makes me wonder who is this for exactly and what are you trying to accomplish? If it's not going to be the chronological chat that helps people collaborate like Slack or Teams, are you just creating a private LinkedIn for your own company? Uh, what's the yeah. point? Like, Well, I, I mean, again, maybe, I, and again, I, I think this has a slightly different, you know, we lump a lot of these together, uh, you know, Teams, Slack, Workplace, uh, other solutions that I'm forgetting right now, but they all have slightly different takes on, you know, mm -hmm. where Slack, I feel like is very much, even though it's organized into channels, very much a free for all, you know, work, maybe workplace isn't for, hey, we're going to have a, uh, you know, project A here, event B, uh, uh, software solution C, you know, chat rooms, and we're all going to chat in those. Maybe it's meant for more, you know, small, you know, just small groups of users kind of getting together and chatting with that and then have overall like here's our HR board, here's our, uh, you know, company retreat board, here's and, and that kind of stuff. I don't think you necessarily need a strictly chronological thing. You need the relevance there. But you're right. Uh, they I think they still have to spell out clearly what this is for. And based on the fact that they have a fifth of the users of Slack right now, they haven't been doing that. Mm -mm. All right, next up here, the U.S. Department of Defense has delayed a decision to award the contract for the development of its Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI, program. They have fun with words. Uh, Amazon Web Services and Azure were the last two bidders. Uh, there's this whole kerfuffle with Oracle uh, suing, saying that that was not fair, that they were awarded. And, and the, the big detail here is they're only going to award it to one of those companies. They're not going to break up this contract into smaller pieces. And it's going to be over 10 years and probably worth around $10 billion. So not an insubstantial amount of money. U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, Dr. Mark Esper took over the position on July 23rd and wants to review the process, uh, perhaps under some political pressure. Uh, Secretary Esper previously was Secretary of the Army. And, you know, up until this point, I think everyone assumed that Amazon was going to win this. Uh, there was some talk of conflict of interest, which has since been, uh, you know, uh, kind of set aside and overruled as irrelevant by various courts and authorities. Um, Amazon has some links to the, the uh, to these kind of government contracts already. They've done a similar contract go ongoing with the CIA uh, right now. Microsoft, though, also, uh, you know, does the uh, has the Defense Enterprise Office Solutions contract, which provides email, calendar, video calling, you know, not necessarily cloud services, but, you know, cloud adjacent or services built on top of their cloud for sure. Um, Oracle couldn't stop this contract here, Ken, but 
maybe government bureaucracy can? I guess I still think that Oracle's kind of behind it because they complained to Trump who, you know, listened to their, their, the business bigwigs. And that's the language he understands is like, you know, they said it was unfair and he listened to them because maybe he's chummy with somebody there. Even if um, there's an extensive review that goes into the contract, unless it's restructured, it's not going to Oracle or anyone else besides AWS, AWS, potentially Azure. It's just, you know, they're not technologically capable. So what's the point? Um, you know, my thought is that maybe the roadblock you know, is the Trump administration and maybe that will clear itself after the 2020 elections. We'll have to wait and see. Um, I mean, or, you know, Trump could just change his mind before then anyway, and it could go through. So I, I think this is, you know, political, you know, bureaucracy combined with, you know, lobbyists and lawyers uh, from Oracle. It, yeah, that's my and, and by suspicion. some extent, you know, we, we've heard some uh, some kind of rumblings that, you know, this is what, what this ultimately is, is a, you know, cloud modernization infrastructure project. And the fact of the matter is until that contract gets approved, that can't happen. And so you're increasingly <laughs> relying on older and older infrastructure you know, theoretic. You know, this isn't just a, um, hey, we want to give a big bucket of money to Amazon or Microsoft or Oracle or whatever like that. You know, there there are some, uh, 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 I guess, national security concerns or or uh, uh, efficiency concerns that delaying this contract delays implementations of you know making Pentagon uh, IT infrastructure uh, a little bit more modern, a little bit faster. Uh, you know, I hope that gets resolved um, one way or the other, uh, just so they can get to work on this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely, but. You know how these things go. Yeah, they, they don't tend to move quickly. Speaking of not moving quickly, the U.S. FCC voted to approve digital opportunity data collection rules that would require ISPs to provide accurate maps of broadband coverage. Now, you may be saying, hey, I've seen maps of broadband coverage. Who knew these weren't accurate? Turns out that under Form 477 rules that the ISPs had previously operated under from the FCC, uh, the ISPs used census block data to show coverage and could count an area served with just a single house connected. Uh, so these census blocks are, you know, fairly large, contains uh, hundreds if not thousands of households. Uh, just having one of those, they can light up that entire block and count that as covered. Uh, under the new rules, ISPs can count an individual home served if they can either provide broadband to that home or provide a connection within 10 business days of a customer request without construction or infrastructure fees outside of a service activation, a standard service activation fee. So, you know, they can't say like, well, if you pay us $10,000, we could dig up, you know, your sidewalk and run that fiber to your house or something like that, uh, which I think is a, is a very important distinction. The rules also call for the creation of a crowdsourcing system to collect public input on the accuracy of ISP maps, basically call out ISPs that say they're covering an area and they actually aren't. Uh, no deadlines, though, have been spent because... You know, it's still a government agency uh, for the, providing these updated maps. And because the 477 rules haven't been sunsetted, those old census block data maps are still going to be provided by the ISPs. Uh, still, though, Ken, uh, shocked to see the FCC do something seemingly so consumer friendly? No, not really. Um, I think they're capable of extending an olive branch now and again. Uh, the results will be interesting once these new maps are drawn, whenever that is, since, as you mentioned, there's no deadline. Uh, but I'm not expecting much action from the current SEC administration once those maps are drawn. Uh, and again, who's going to see them if ISPs aren't required to provide the new maps by any current deadline for sunsetting the old ones? Then, 
what's so, the chances that we're all going to see them voluntarily? So, that, so that's not set in stone. What, essentially, like they have to just uh, uh, so they've voted on these rules, and when they implement them, they will set a deadline at that point okay. for providing maps. Just right now, we just don't know when that's going to be. Whether it's like a year, or two years out, or something like I that. I see. And what these maps will be used for, theoretically, uh, the FCC is sitting about twenty billion dollars of uh, you know kind of rural broadband expansion uh, uh, investment money, and so. What, what essentially they're saying is, hey, we need to provide these where this is actually needed, not where you've lit up, you know, one farmhouse uh, and you've counting, a, you know, a, a 50 square mile area or something like that uh, served. We need to actually know where this is, uh, where this is needed, where there is there are massive, uh, you know, kind of uh, broadband outages and put that money there. And that's one of the reasons why they've voted to adopt these rules, which, you know, ultimately, if we can get more people uh, access to better Internet, uh, all the better. Absolutely. And I think the results will be telling. I think many people have heard s stories from friends or family members who live in the middle of nowhere about their lack of options when it comes to broadband internet access, despite the fact that those of us who live in a more urban or suburban areas think it's it, ubiquitous. I think we'll find out that it's clearly not. But uh, 5G is going to solve everything, right, Ken? Yeah, whenever that comes in the next <laughs> decade or, or whatever. All right. Uh, well, not uh, uh, happening in the next decade is the end of the show. It's actually happening right now, Ken. I know you're sad. This is the end of this uh, week's Gestalt IT Rundown. But thank you for being here, Ken. And where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined to check it out? And check out my writing at gestaltit.com. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nablin. And be sure to check out techfieldday.com for my other job. Yes, exactly. And you can find me on gestaltit.com as well, or you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. That's MR Anthropology. And like I said, be sure, you know, we're talking about EA storage. We're talking about MapBar. We got some cool stuff about uh, them up on gestaltit and techfieldday.com. So check out uh, those uh, those podcasts, those videos, a lot of great stuff there as well. Uh, I, like I said, that just about brings us to the end of the show. We'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, bringing you the IT News of the Week. Until then, remember, everybody. Have a super sparkly day.